Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. On today's podcast, we have Amy Carpenter. Amy is the owner and CEO of Solterra Solar, a Seattle-based solar energy contractor. She has been an entrepreneur in the construction industry since 2004. She leads a team of 25 people at Solterra to bring solar design and installation to home and business owners across the state of Washington. Additionally, she founded Good Energy Solar out of Austin, Texas in August of 2020. Good Energy is primarily focused on solar plus battery backup, bringing energy resilience to the state and the state that experienced damaged grid instability. She serves on the board for the Seattle chapter of Entrepreneurs Organization. She's also on the advisory board of Needy and a big sister in Big Brothers Big Sisters as well as she coaches incarcerated entrepreneurs in training through Defy Ventures. Is that all right, Amy? Did I get all of that in there? <laughs> yes, you did. Just one little correction. The advisory board is Nettie instead Nettie. of Nettie. But... <laughs> Nettie, Nettie. Well, there you go. So Nettie, 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 Nettie. Make sure that that's right. So welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So why don't we get right into it? You know, I love some some of our back-end conversations, the back and forth. Got a lot of energy, I mean, coming from a sales background. Why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory on who you are and Solterra and how did you become CEO of Solterra? Yeah, happy to. So as mentioned in kind of my intro, I've been in the construction space and kind of been in entrepreneurial space since 2004. Um, that really was my freshman year of college, so aging myself <laughs> right out the gate. But you know, worked for an entrepreneurial development company called Student Painters in college. Learned a ton of valuable skills around sales and marketing, in-home sort of estimating, as well as delivering on promises made in that sales process. So that really set me up well to enter the real world and and understand what a successful sales sort of process looks like. I landed in the solar space completely by accident. I graduated college in 2008, which was, as many of us recall, not a great time to be a new (laughs) career seeking individual. Thankfully, I did have some good connections through that entrepreneurial program I'd done in college. So I landed a marketing account manager role for ESPN, which I'll honestly say the best part of that job was getting to tell people I worked at ESPN really fun bar conversation starter, you know, being (laughs) fresh out of college, but it really wasn't an entrepreneurial role at all. There was sort of a set list of tasks. And I was, I think more than anything, a budget placeholder at that time. I was super grateful to have the job. It paid well. I had benefits, you know, all the things my dad really wanted me to check the box with. But for me, it was not igniting my passion for, you know, feeling like I was making the most of my time. And so a good friend of mine was working for a solar company in Seattle and referred me to an open sales position that they had. And it was ironic because I think today I would never have gotten that job just because the industry has evolved. I had zero solar experience, never taken a physics class in my life. Like 
really did not understand the difference between like a kilowatt and a kilowatt hour, but you know, read the company's website and faked it till I made it through that interview and got the job offer and worked in that role for about a year and a half as a full commission based salesperson in 2009 in this new industry that no one knew about in Seattle, where generally people don't associate us with being like a sunshine state. So that had its challenges and definitely I learned a lot in that year and a half. I ended up taking a year off to go back to the student painters company to be an executive coach and then just realized through that process that solar was actually an industry that I really loved. You know, once I learned about the technology, I was super jazzed about it. It makes so much sense in so many instances to be using a resource like the sun that literally has no capacity to it. I always used to joke in my sales calls, like if we run out of sunshine, we have much bigger issues on our hands than whether or not solar panels are right for your home. So anyway, so fast forward a few years, I landed a sales manager role at Solterra, which is the company that I now own. And I spent about seven years in that role, just building out the sales process, really working with the operations team as well. Something I care a lot about is the customer experience and in contracting, that is something that often falls by the wayside. It shouldn't be that hard to just do what you say you're going to do. But for whatever reason, that proves to be a big challenge in construction. So I worked a lot with our operations team to make sure our sales to operations handoff was pretty seamless. And that kind of all prepped me for a conversation I wasn't expecting to have at the end of 2017, which I approached the founder of Solterra to tell him, you know, kind of in a condensed version that I needed an exit plan, that I was ready to move on from the company that I you know, felt like I had grown as much as I was going to grow in that role. And I kind of had some intangible goals in my head of like wanting to create influence on a larger scale, feeling challenged as a professional, putting myself outside of my comfort zone again. And the irony of that is that conversation completely took a 180. And instead of me leaving the company, resulted in me becoming owner of the company. And there was a lot of kind of emotional roller coaster that went into that. You know, I wasn't really sure that's what I wanted. I wasn't sure I was capable. I wasn't sure the risk was a good idea. There was a lot of things going on in my head. And when I tell this story, I'll often joke with my you know friends or colleagues or whoever I'm sharing with that in the kind of week that I had to make this decision, because they told me in mid-December, if I didn't decide to take over the company, they were probably going to close it January 1st. So no pressure, wow. but... <laughs> I called my two friends, two really good friends who both happened to be attorneys. And I expected them to be really like risk averse in that conversation and be like, yeah, you know, you're right. It's probably a lot of risk. And instead, of course, they were like, why would you not take this opportunity? This is literally a business that you've already been involved with building. Like they're handing you this opportunity on a silver platter, so to speak. Like when else are you going to have the chance to take what you already know how to do, but like actually get some acknowledgement for it. And so my little plan backfired with calling them and I decided to accept. <laughs> and so became CEO officially uh, January 1st, 2018. And I was actually reflecting, you know, being the turn of the year that it's kind of wild that I've already been in that role for four years because it still feels like I have a lot to learn and that there's things I want to do with the company I haven't been able to. And so, yeah, that's the not so short version of how I ended up <laughs> the CEO of Solvera. Well, don't worry. That feeling of uh, constantly learning never goes away. <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> also, you might know the best lawyers in the world. I don't want to plug them too heavy, but oh my goodness. <laughs> we're talking, talk about game changer here. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really grateful that they, I think in a weird way, it's like, or not even a weird way, just in a way, 
you know, the best friends are the ones that can validate things in you that you don't even necessarily see yourself. And I think that was, you know, looking back on it really, yeah, a total life-changing conversation because they already saw that I was capable of it. Even the founder of the company, like in handing the business off to me was like, you're just going to start getting recognition for what you've already been doing. You've already been running the company. So yeah, it's nice. Yeah. I'm very fortunate. I had people in my circle that could do that for me because I wasn't really giving myself the same benefit of the doubt. So you're obviously learning a lot, but what would you like to have known before taking over the company? Oh gosh. I would say there's probably a lot of things I could answer that question with. The the most obvious one that stands out was just, I wish I had a better understanding and, and had taken a little more interest in the financials of the company. I did get advice from the founder and I think it was good advice at the time. He said, no matter what, don't lose sight of continuing to make sales. Because if you have the revenue, you know, that's going to kind of keep the the machine going. But I didn't really dive into learning like QuickBooks or how to really read our, you know, balance sheet and how that really interacts with the PL until sometime in 2019. So like a full year after I had been running the company. All I really looked at that first year was how much revenue are we installing? And obviously I knew what net profit was. So like looking at that. And I'm actually a very numbers focused person. I, you know, love math. I love data. You guys heard a lot about that even before doing this recording. And so it's ironic that I didn't actually look at that. So I think I wish I would have known to start diving into that very early on. And then I think the other thing that I wish I had known, I kind of already alluded to, which is that concept of like always learning. And because I was a bit feeling out of my element, taking on the CEO role and title, I was really hesitant to make any changes to the business for like the first eight months. Even things that would have seemed very logical. I didn't want to break something that was already working reasonably well. So the first big decision I remember making was like August or September. So like eight or nine months into my journey. And one of my uh, key operations people was like, hey, do you realize that we're still making our installers buy their own tools? And I was like, oh, we are? Do we think that's a good policy? And they're like, not really, because people were hiring don't have necessarily the financial ability to like buy the tools they need. And so then they're borrowing them from tenured people and then they're really not working very efficiently. So that was my first journey of like, okay, get me a spreadsheet. Like how much do we need to spend per person? What do we think that's going to do to improve efficiency? And it was like, I want to say eight or $9,000 to like outfit everyone with the proper tools. And in my head, I was like, okay, that's going to take almost no time (laughs) to pay for itself. And then of course, just the customer experience, right? If you, not that they're really watching that closely usually, but if you see a crew of people show up where they don't seem to have enough tools to do the job, you know, you're going to start questioning other things about the company. So that little kind of seemingly no brainer decision though, was like the beginning of me actually kind of stepping into that ownership of making, you know, decisions I wanted to make for the company. So that would have been nice if I could have somehow known that I should start doing that sooner when I took over the company. So obviously you had to see the greener pastures on the other side, right? So you took a step into the into that seat, but what was it about entrepreneurship that was appealing to you? And is that different from what you see today now that you're actually living it? I think that entrepreneurship has always been the mindset that I've had as an adult. I think I really before 2018 was always interested in being in roles where I could be entrepreneurial 
in nature, like I've never wanted a role where I have to fill out a time card or where I have to prove that I'm working more than 40 hours every single week. You know, obviously there's some weeks I'm working significantly more than that, but I think that's why sales was a natural fit for me because it's very entrepreneurial in nature. And so I've always loved this concept of you're going to get out of this thing, whatever that thing may be, what you put into it. If you have a goal to sell a certain amount of projects in a month, you can reverse engineer that just by knowing like, what is my closing rate? So then if I know my closing rate, how many appointments do I have to sit? And it was a nice way for me to track. And I think this actually set me up well for entrepreneur, like actual entrepreneurship and owning a company is that you're never really done working. Like there's always something else you could be doing in a sales role. That's true in terms of like hitting the phone for an extra hour, setting that extra appointment. And so I was able to develop kind of that balance of what I thought was enough work, which always came from me setting clear goals and then kind of reverse engineering that in a business plan in some sort of a way. So I still love that aspect of business ownership as well, which is, yes, I work a lot of hours, but my schedule is very flexible as well. And I think because of all of the experience I've had leading up to this, I've been able to set my team up in the same way that I always wanted to be managed, which was here is the outcome we're looking for. So in a sales role, if the outcome is 100,000 in sales in a month, that's what you have to achieve as a salesperson. If it takes you 20 hours a week or 60 hours a week to do that, I literally don't care how much time you put into it. If you can find a way to hack that system and only have to work 20 to 25 hours a week, I will celebrate that with you. Like it's not about how many hours you work. And it's the same thing with my project management side. You know, we have a couple of key things that we're measuring. How much revenue per month are we installing? Billable hours versus overhead hours, obviously net profit on those projects. And so just tracking all of those things, I think empowers my team members to be able to do their job without constantly needing to ask me for input, which is the ultimate dream of an entrepreneur, which then you have something that can kind of run itself and you're obviously available when needed. But, you know, I don't have to be clocked in 40, 50 hours every single week because my team is empowered to make their own decisions and they know what they need to be doing. So, wow, this is a great transition point to <laughs> talk about kind of your philosophy on hiring. I mean, you've like literally just walked into what I was what I was going to ask you about. So why don't you tell us about your philosophy in hiring and some of the decisions you've you've made? Yeah. So I think I've been pretty fortunate with most of my hiring decisions. I will say as a caveat, I don't feel like I figured hiring out. I think it's challenging as a small business owner to even get in front of good candidates because there's a lot of competition in terms of, you know, when someone's seeking a job. So I have relied somewhat on like referrals from existing employees, trying to network and, you know, non-traditional ways, I guess. I don't like just put our ad on LinkedIn and hope for the best. There's like a lot of networking that's happening in the industry as well as, yeah, the more traditional veins of recruiting. But when actually reviewing candidates, one of the things that's helped me with, this isn't really recruiting decisions, but more just for anyone listening who's like struggling with that aspect of recruiting, we've always done something called high posture recruiting, which is something I learned back in college in that uh, internship I was in, which is basically like making the sale, the candidate for the position feel like they don't already have it in the bag. Like to me, the best candidates need to feel like they're earning something, like that they have achieved a win <laughs> by getting the offer. And I think a lot of times what will happen is there's a lot of assumptive language used in recruiting, like, oh, when you have this job, you'll be doing this versus what high posture recruiting sounds like is if you were to be offered the role, this is what 
you would be expected to be doing. And that little subtle difference, like kind of sounds cheesy when you know it's happening, but it does make a difference in terms of those best candidates, the top performers stay more interested because they don't feel like we're desperate to hire them or they already have it in the bag. So that's helped us for sure in terms of keeping the best candidates interested. And then in terms of hiring, I really try to focus not so much on just, do they have a ton of experience in the role that I'm already hiring them for, but it's a lot more about some of the intangible or untrainable aspects. So when it comes to someone who's gonna be a rooftop installer or an electrician, I'm really looking for, you know, what experience do they have or, or to, for them to tell us about a time where they've delighted a customer or when they chose to do something when no one was looking that showed integrity. And of course, people can, you know, wing their way through those interview types of questions, but those would be examples where it's really hard to train someone on integrity, right? It's really hard to train someone on, hey, value the customer's home like it is your own. Like you can tell people that, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to embody that value. Of I think of <laughs> with salespeople, I'm really looking for that same entrepreneurial sort of mindset. I don't frequently like to hire career salespeople only because they tend to have a lot of habits already ingrained, some good, some not so good. So most of our salespeople, they may have a little bit of experience with sales or like sales adjacent type of activities like fundraising or uh, something like that. But most of the training occurs, you know, through our company's onboarding process. And yeah, it's more looking for like grit, tenacity. These are both kind of like buzzwords nowadays, but really someone who's willing to like go all in on something and, and willing to think of this as something where one week I might choose to work that 60 or 70 hours, but I love the idea of like, also getting to only work four day work weeks in the summer if I set myself up for that. So sounds like you might have paid some entrepreneurial tax while doing some hiring. Gotta ask, have you mishired before? And you know what effect did that have on you, uh, on your company? I mean, yeah, definitely have mishired. And I think the biggest lessons I've learned from that is that it's in my nature to wanna give people a lot of chances. <laughs> And what I found is that having a very clear like reprimand system that's always focused on the behavior and not the individual and really not giving a lot of extra chances. Like in sales, it's like you have until the end of this quarter to be at this minimum. And even if you're within five or $10,000 of it, like that's not the mark. So it's a like all or nothing sort of situation. And anytime that I have not followed my own system, it has only amplified the negative effects of keeping that person around for longer, whether that's our reputation or their teammates feeling like they're not getting what they need from their colleague. So yeah, I mean, it's always a challenge. It's very time consuming to fire someone. It's very time consuming to have to onboard a new person. And so I think, I think those decisions are sometimes inevitable, but I definitely take each time I have to let someone go, I take that sort of very seriously and really think through like what red flags might I have ignored or going back in time, you know, could I have potentially come to a different conclusion in hiring that person? Sometimes I can hold myself accountable and find a lot of things that I'm like, oh, I skipped that step in my process and I didn't do this or whatnot. And sometimes it's, I do feel like it's inevitable. You're going to make bad hires and you just have to kind of, you know, <laughs> accept it and move forward from that place. You can't like spend a lot of time, I think, wallowing in like sadness or self-pity for your bad hires. It's like, it is what it is. Like, what are we going to do now to 
to move forward. Well, it is interesting because, you know, small businesses, like we care about our people. Like that is like, I think that's the biggest differentiator when you take an enterprise level company to a small business. And like, you know, why, why can't we be more diligent about following the own processes that we created? It's because we care about people and it's, it becomes that thing. So you're certainly not the only one in the, the seat of like, well, I should have just black and white by the book and not thought about it. But then you're like, yeah, but I know that person and like care about their success in life. So no, I hear you, Amy. Yeah. I also think with entrepreneurs, usually, well, with small business, I should say, we're a team of 25. There's not a team for each sort of sub segment of the business. Like finance is one person, you know, project management is two people. (laughs) So letting someone go really is also part of that equation is how are we going to get this job done? in the interim like i think at least i'm guilty of being like well i can justify this very mediocre performance because it still means that i'm not having to do it but i know every time i've had that dialogue in my head by the time i finally get around to letting that person you know go on to their next thing it's like oh my gosh we should have done this six months ago or three months ago and everyone on in a small business i think kind of knows they wear many hats and so it's always been manageable. And then usually we are able to raise the bar in terms of, okay, the next hire, we need to make sure we look for these things and don't miss these red flags. And suddenly you have someone in a role where you're like, oh, I wish we would have had this person, you know, a year ago. So it's always like the perceived challenge of letting someone go as a small business. It's always way worse in my head than what it ends up being. And like the team is able to come together and, you know, stumble through it at least till we can hire someone new. So, you know, you bring up some great points. Well, what about, so when you say raise the bar, what about decisions where would you spend more than what you initially reserve for? So why? Do you have any experiences around that? Definitely. I think I have been guilty and I kind of inherited this too, where, you know, when you're trying to grow and you don't have a lot of extra, you know, cash to invest, you're really trying to look for like, okay, what's the cheapest I can get something done? And it's like a really easy trap to fall into because you're like, oh, if I can hire an operations manager for, you know, 75,000 a year instead of 95,000 a year, that's amazing. That's 20K to the bottom line of profit. But what's lost in that decision making is how much more experience does the 20K more person have? You know, what else could they bring to the table if they could grow the company's revenue, you know, 200,000 and that brings, you know, 40K more to the bottom line. And I only had to put 20 of it towards them. Obviously that's an easy decision. You know, no one has a crystal ball and no one can actually say like, this is exactly how that's going to go. But I've definitely found that I'm more willing to spend a little more money the second time I have to hire (laughs) for someone because I've experienced what it's like to, you know, maybe go a little cheaper on a solution. And I think what I've learned from that is I really try to build in certain performance elements to the compensation. Like if I wanted to hire someone who was a more expensive individual, I would say, okay, here is what success looks like for your role in 90 days and in a one year timeframe. And that's something that I was taught from a recruiting firm that we worked with for hiring a top level executive type of role. It's really important to define for people what success looks like in their role. And in that instance, if I were to say, hey, in this role, what success looks like in the first year is growing top line revenue, 10% or 20%, or maybe it's 
you need to find a way to tighten our labor costs of goods by a couple percentage points, whatever it may be. That I think has helped me feel more comfortable making the decision. Whether or not it actually happens in reality, of course, requires the entrepreneur to stay focused enough to then measure that and then hold the person accountable for it, which is a challenge for entrepreneurial types sometimes. But it has been helpful when I've thought through that on the point of hiring to be able to go back and look at it at, a, at an annual review, for example, and be able to say, here's the things you achieved. Here's the things that you fell short on. Let's have a discussion about how you can achieve those next year. And I, I think putting a little bit more intentionality up front, whether it comes to hiring or annual goals or even like annual reviews, that can be so impactful for what that employee feels in terms of you know their own performance and their own empowerment for going and trying to figure that out the next year and if all the numbers actually work together then you know likely to to be a success story well it sounds like you do have a bit of a crystal ball you know in today's world right i, I hate to talk about the obvious but we're might be going to the post-pandemic maybe sometime in the next year. But in the meantime, we're having to deal with the great resignation, right? The great resignation. Has that impacted your company? And tell us about decision-making around that. What, what have you had to do? Yeah, so I actually keep waiting for the great resignation to impact us. And I'm sort of mentally prepared for that to happen. And I, I haven't really, I don't think we've felt the impacts quite as much as some companies have. And I, what I would attribute that to is I've really focused a lot in the last four years on making Solterra a really good place to work, you know, valuing the employees, improving our benefits package, improving offering retirement, which isn't even really a requirement for a company of our size, but actually having like a decent 401k matching and just making decisions and like sort of leading by example of like, this is a place where we invest in the people as well as trying to grow the company. I think what's helped us is we already pay well above like minimum wage type of wages, even for the most entry level of jobs. We recently started something to help with retention that I called the solar school, which is for our installers, their electrical apprentices. And after about three years, they have the hours to be able to test to become a journeyman electrician, which comes with a huge wage increase. It's a credential that obviously is transferable to a lot of different job opportunities. And we were kind of realizing that we had five or six apprentices that were ready to test and we couldn't figure out why there was some hesitancy around taking that opportunity, even though it would mean so much of an impact for that individual's livelihood. And we kind of thought we had a hypothesis. We weren't really sure, but we're like, maybe there's some testing anxiety. Maybe there's not like the dedicated time or space in their homes to study for the test. And so, our electricians, the, the primary electrician who oversees everything, as well as some of our electricians on staff have volunteered to run every other Friday. We do kind of study questions, study prep, et cetera. And so that's just one example that I think is a little bit of a shift that doesn't really cost us much as a company, but is, is showing through actions that we're investing in our team members' future. And we really haven't had much turnover that's attributed to like, oh, I don't want to work at this company. We've had people like move to other states to be with their families or, or something like that. And then, yeah, on the sales side, it's pretty rare for me to have someone leave unless I, I mean, unless they're underperforming, which does happen, or usually I'll know three, six, even a year in advance, three to six months to a year in advance that they're leaving. Because I always tell my team, I want you to have those opportunities. Like I kind of position myself as like a life mentor in some ways. And if you have an opportunity where you 
that makes sense for you to leave Solterra, like let's work together on like a really clean exit plan versus you telling me two weeks before you leave <laughs> that you're leaving because it's really hard to react as a business owner with only that amount of notice. We got, we got to, st- we got to stop. This. <laughs> you're giving us so much. Okay. <laughs> uh, like, holy cow, Justin, you probably had the same thing. As- Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you got to be careful. They're going to ask for an exit strategy and assume they're going to become the CEO like you did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, also, well. <laughs> solar school, like all these things, these are ma- like, these are amazing, like amazing benefits that that's, that is, yeah. we didn't, we didn't know about any of that in the, the priest. We, we apparently <laughs> asked poor questions before. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, you the solar school has been really well received. We've had like six six to eight people i feel like attending those sessions so that's awesome that is great that's, really cool. that's, that's amazing investment in your people so you know you, you've you're investing we've definitely heard about you investing your uh, in your people on sort of the technical side right that's the type of technical side uh, to be able to deliver your services but you came from a different side you came from a sales and marketing side so prior right how did you what did you do? How did you grow the business uh, so that you could pass down? Because once you become CEO, that's not your full-time job anymore. So you need to pass it to salespeople. How would you do that? What did you do? Yeah, I, I didn't really do that at first. I was the salesman, acting sales manager for the first three years, I think. <laughs> and it was in 2020. I mean, there was a lot to manage in 2020 as a business owner, but during... 2020, I was like, okay, this is not sustainable for me to be the sales manager. But I was hesitant to let that go. That was definitely my key to success was this. We took a very educational kind of consultative approach to the sales process. And so I was a little nervous to hand off that training process to anyone else. But what ended up happening is I had two salespeople, both who were very, you know, strong salespeople and kind of I think it was the beginning of 2020. I was like, okay, someone, I need to pick someone to be the sales manager, but I don't know who it's going to be. And I was kind of just observing like how their evolution was. And and there was one individual in particular, his name's Kevin. And he actually shared with me at the beginning of 2020 that he really loved his sales job. We were on a sales retreat of visiting a couple of manufacturer partners in California. And he pulled me aside on the last day. And Kevin's like, he's a former installer became an electrician, then transitioned into sales. And he is not a particularly emotional person, but when he pulled me aside, he like literally teared up and was like, I don't want to leave this company, but I, you know, I have two young kids now. I really need, you know, the opportunity to grow and support my family. And he's like, we're going to need to have that conversation at some point. And I was like, noted, (laughs) hopefully we can figure something out. If we can't, you know, obviously I'll support you in that transition. It's just going to really depend on like what happens with the business. That was, I think, January or February, 2020. So a lot happened that year. (laughs) And so in March, I actually, I think one thing that's really helped me as a leader is just to try to remember those types of conversations and, and really actually let the impact of them like resonate with me because that was obviously a tough conversation for him to have with me. It would have been very easy to be like, I'm too busy. I'm stressed out. This pandemic thing is a nightmare. I don't even know what our business is going to look like. But I took 10 minutes at some point, you know, early in 2020 or early in the pandemic, I should say, to just pull him aside and say, hey, so I haven't forgotten about that conversation we had. Obviously, 
everything is kind of up in the air right now. We don't really know what the future looks like. A lot of businesses are closing. Like, I want to continue to pay you as I have been. And he's like, yeah, of course, I'm not really too worried about it, et cetera. So fast forward to, it was like November of 2020, a couple of different things that evolved over the year. And Kevin was clearly the right person out of my existing team to take over my role as a sales manager. So that, that conversation then happened. I was like, Hey, this is what I want to do. You know, is that even something you're interested in? I think that's another thing that is an easy trap to fall into is like, I come up with what I think is the best idea for this employee and just go with it. And I always have to remind myself, like they need time to catch up. Like I've envisioned this whole plan for them that they haven't even heard of. I'm surprising them with it. And they're not necessarily going to have an immediate, like, okay, I'm in response. And that's like normal. (laughs) So, but the conversation went well in terms of like, I think you're really capable of this. And I want to coach and mentor you in that role. And I do think it's kind of the perfect solution for you to get to stay at a company you love and obviously grow professionally, grow your potential income as well. And so he's really been someone that's an extension of me. And, you know, I trained him and mentored him for I think three years as a salesperson. So it's funny now, one of our newest salespeople, I still go and interact with the company once a month. I live in Austin most of the time, but then I'm in Seattle for one week every month to make sure I'm showing face and, you know, having meetings with people. And our newest salesperson will sometimes play this little game of like, I don't like the answer I got from dad. So I'm going to ask mom. (laughs) So he'll ask me questions that he's already asked his manager. And my response, I'll give him my response. And he's like, God, this is so wild. And I'm like, what? And he goes, you and Kevin are literally saying the same thing word for word. And I'm like, perfect. (laughs) But I've trained him well. (laughs) Sounds like you've got some great values that your decision making is being derived from. Because if you're able to not be in the same room and still say the same thing, right? Two different people saying the same thing. Mom and dad are definitely in line, right? <laughs> we're uh, definitely like in line. We were very like different personalities, but it's kind of interesting. I think a big part of it is just we have a mutual respect for each other. That's like one of my core values in terms of leadership and what I expect from my team is that, you know, everyone's a person. Everyone deserves to be treated with respect. It doesn't matter what level someone is coming into our company as or what backgrounds our clients might have, you know, this mutual respect theme is like extremely important to me. And I think that a lot of the relationships I have with my team members, you know, the foundation is rooted in that. Last couple things that I want to talk about before we move on to something really interesting that you've talked about before. But first, regarding your salespeople, I'm going to give you a two-parter. How do you know when you have a good or a bad salesperson? And then what kind of expectation, you know, you talked to me a little bit about expectation setting that I thought was super interesting. I think our our audience would want to hear in terms of what you do with your salespeople and clients. So good and bad, and then expectation setting. All right. Hopefully I remember what I said. That's like a common theme with our prep. I'm like, wait, which stories did I tell you? Obviously today I'm sharing new things, so (laughs) it didn't work perfectly. But yeah, so good or bad salespeople, I mean... I think this question can be answered as kind of a combined answer because I'm very, very clear with what my expected sales performance is from a salesperson. So the very first, like very easy way to be like, is this person performing or not? is just whether or not they're meeting the minimum performance expectations. Because I have 12 years of experience or 13 years now of experience in solar, 
I know what's possible and what's not a possible goal. And I definitely know what shouldn't take a lot of effort to still <laughs> achieve. So I have something very clear that our salespeople sign when they're hired, which says, you know, this is the minimum performance expectation per month and per quarter. This would be the average. So this is actually what you want to strive for or what I would consider like an on-target earnings type of level. And then here's what above average performance looks like. Salespeople are competitive. They want to know like, what's the previous record? What is the best closing rate you've ever seen? They want to strive for that above average or, or best case scenario. I think most salespeople are parallel to entrepreneurs in that way too, where we tend to be very optimistic about outcomes. And so with salespeople, I found it's really important to say, okay, I want you to achieve that above average as well. That's awesome. And we will coach you and you know push you towards that goal and support you in that endeavor. However, here's the other side of that. If you sell less than this amount for one month, you'll be on probation. You'll have sort of a performance improvement plan. And basically over the course of a quarter, if they underperform for the entire quarter, that's automatic grounds for termination. And this is, you know, sounds maybe a little harsh, but it's sales, right? Their number one requirement for contribution to the company is what revenue are they bringing in? And I've done all the math of like, what does it actually cost me to have a salesperson for between their salary, the leads that we provide them, their benefits. And so we actually have like a break even point on a salesperson, which is exactly what that minimum standard is. And it's removed any sort of personal elements to it. It's very black or white. You sell this amount, you keep your job. You don't sell this amount, you don't keep your job. And anytime I've deviated from that, I've regretted it. <laughs> so I'm now very, <laughs> very strict with it. So that's like the first thing about a good salesperson is just whether or not they hit, hit that mark. But I think a truly good salesperson, there's more to them than that. So I look a lot at like, what is their investment in the industry? Do I see them, you know, keeping up on industry trends? Are they excited about the technology? Are they kind of really taking pride in, in that ongoing investment and in being a true subject matter expert? Or are they just relying on whatever we bring to our team sales meeting where we're kind of making sure they know at least some of the basic updates to the industry? And then the other thing I really look at is what are they doing to invest in their client relationships? We as a company um, actually just checked this math a week ago to do our like 2021 wrapped, but we have, I think it was 40% of our new customers in 2021 were referrals from existing customers, which to me is a wow. huge referral rate. It was one in three a couple years ago. And so I was, you know, I thought I wouldn't really be able to get much better than that, but 40% was the number last year. So I use that statistic with my salespeople to say, Hey, you have a company who's backing up the promises that you make to your clients. When you tell them they're going to have a good experience, we have proof in data that they have a good experience so much so that they're willing to refer their friends, which people are very quick to share their negative experiences online or with their friends. You have to really wow someone for them to go above and beyond to share their positive experience. So that investment in customer relationship, are you, you know, I'm looking for them to like touch base with them after their first year of install, touch base with them after their first summer, you know, just little ways to kind of stay top of mind every three to six months with their clients. If they're doing that, I know they have the makings of being a really great salesperson because the first year they're not going to, they're not likely to far exceed those, you know, average expectations just because there's still a steep learning curve. They don't really have the referral base yet from the clients. But our sales role is really entrepreneurial in nature because what they invest in their first year will definitely potentially pay dividends in year two and year three and beyond. Wow. 
That is super cool. Having salespeople really, they sort of are relationship managers in a way, right? Because they keep Absolutely. such a bad <laughs> and 40% referral. I mean, in terms of construction industry, that's really high. That's like really high. So congratulations on that. So <laughs> Thanks. It's nice to have that validated. I'm like, it seems high, but I don't really have any way to gauge it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's really high. So, you know, there's one other thing that you had uh, talked about, which is, you know, teaching both your salespeople, and you said something interesting, also clients in resetting expectations. Can you talk to me? Why do you do that? You know, what is, I mean, when I, in all the companies that I've talked to, I don't think they do it the way that you do. And I think you have a great reason as to why you do that. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to remember which example that is this a, like the expectation management as part of the sales process? Is that yes. what we're talking about? Okay. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, a big theme for me is expectation management as a whole. We do an expectation meeting when my salespeople start to really just create a solid foundation for what they can expect from the company, what they can expect from their manager, what we expect from them. There's like absolute clarity on what doing a good job or not doing a good job is going to look like. And so taking that theme into our relationships with our clients is really important because I think expectation management ultimately just builds trust and builds kind of a, a solid relationship. So there's a lot of inherent distrust of salespeople for a variety of reasons. And I think there's a lot of distrust of contractors as well, because everyone has that story, you know, the contractor experience gone wrong. And for us to just tell the customer, oh, we're not like that, we're different, like doesn't really mean anything, but we can really show through our actions that we have that integrity, you know, like, like actions speak louder than words. So what we do is the first step with solar, people request more information and we do a phone screen. And the thing that I really hammer on with my salespeople is don't skip steps on the phone screen and be really direct and honest with that process. So we ask customers what they know about solar, what research they've done, what they know about the incentives. All of these questions are very strategic, targeted questions to find out whether or not they have realistic expectations for a solar install. We ask them what they think the average cost is. We ask them what they're hoping to accomplish with an install. Those questions are really important because if someone says, oh, I think solar is going to cost me five to $10,000 and really our average project is 20 to 30, do not go on that bid unless they are expecting to pay 20 to 30,000. Now, of course, there's low interest loan programs. People aren't really paying cash for these systems, but that's a perfect example where if you don't have the like directness or even the courage to say, well, actually, you know, this is our average project size or this is what our average customer spends. What do you think about that? Is that something you're still interested in moving forward with? You know, asking those really like smart questions is educating the customer along the way. And also we're removing that stereotype of we're going to say whatever we need to say to get the sale. Like if you're talking to a salesperson who can just be like, oh, well, very matter of factly, this is what it costs. This is what the incentives are. The thing you want to accomplish, that's actually not realistic in our market. Here's what is realistic. And if they hear all of that stuff and they still say, yes, I think that still sounds good. I want to schedule an appointment. Now you have a much higher likelihood of having a good experience with that client and probably selling the job. And so our, our sales team also has a fairly high closing rate from what I've heard. We usually close about one in three of our solar appointments, but it's because we're actually not trying to go out and sit in front of every single person that raises their hand and says, yeah, I think I might want solar. We spend the 10 minutes on the phone, educate them on the basics. And then if they're still opting in, then we go on the appointment. 
Sounds like the exact opposite of what a used car salesman does. Yeah, we don't want to be that person. I mean, we're really, I think one of the values that I have that I've instilled in our and our team, and we do hire for this too, is just a general interest in wanting to see this industry thrive. And solar is rampant with a lot of misinformation. You do a Google search on solar and you're going to get a thousand different, you know, conflicting points of information. There's a lot of money in solar. It's a high ticket item. So there's kind of this desire for roofing contractors, electrical contractors to get into solar. Outside of Washington state, there's really big financial institutions that take a huge cut of the market. And there's just a lot of things happening in the industry that make it harder for it to become adopted as a really regular source of, you know, electricity for our homes. And so with my salespeople, I'm really focused on you're an educator first and foremost, be transparent with what's going to work and what's not going to work. Because even if they don't buy from you, we don't want them going to some fly by night contractor that tells them it's going to produce twice as much power as it does. Now they're talking to everyone who will listen about how solar doesn't work in Washington. That's problematic for all of us. So educate your clients on what to look for, even if it's you recommend they don't do solar. Like I've had many people have mad respect for the fact that I'm like, hey, your roof is not a good candidate. Here's why. And if anyone tries to sell you solar, they don't know what they're talking about. Like I'll get referrals from non-customers just because I tell them that really directly. So everyone on our sales team is trained to do the same thing and to really... I think solar sells itself. If it makes sense to you, it's going to make sense to you. And there's also instances where it doesn't make sense. We don't need to win those jobs because they will have unknown sort of detrimental expenses down the road when something doesn't work the way it's supposed to, or, you know, they're not thrilled with their install. That's a great point on the market. Like if, even if they don't choose you, if they go somewhere else and have a horrible experience, they're going to just down the market and that hurts you in the long run. That's really smart thinking. Sounds like uh, your philosophy around essentially being really data driven is really important in educating your clients. You know, sounds like you also have and collect a lot of data, you know, does that change your decision-making as to what you do in the different types of sales that you guys do, you know, or the different types of like, how does that, how does that change what you're doing? Yeah. So I track a lot of stuff. (laughs) We use like the CRM we use helps with just tracking like closing rates and lead conversions to appointments and things like that. And I use that type of data to just decide whether or not a marketing source is a good one. Like actually we have decided to stop using a certain marketing platform for the time being, because the, cost per lead compared to how much we sold from that source just no longer seems to be making sense. And I looked at just as an example, I gave, you know, if we give a salesperson a hundred leads and 30 of them were from this resource, but they sold zero of them. Like I would rather not give them those 30 leads and then free up their time for like, what else could they do when they were trying to chase down those 30 not great leads. So in that aspect, I'm, I'm going to encourage the sales team now. It's like, okay, you don't have these leads anymore. You're going to feel like you're getting fewer leads, but here's the data to back up the decision. And what can you do with those extra two to three hours each week? How can you maintain better relationships with your clients? What other marketing ideas do you have that maybe I'm not thinking of? And I think that's a way to, I'm hoping to inspire like a little bit more investment in helping to create the outcome that they want in the future. And then the other thing that I've spent a lot of time on with data is our job costing. So really starting to track very closely, what's our labor cost percentage? What's our material cost percentage? When I started tracking that data, it was interesting to see, like we changed our percentage, our overhead markup, because 
once I looked at the data, I'm like, oh, there's been some industry trends that have changed where what we were doing four years ago is actually setting us up for failure. Like our 2019 was not a very good year because I had just not realized that the pricing strategy that had worked in the past was actually making it very difficult for us to be profitable. And I don't think we really would have lost those sales had we charged 1% more or 2% more, but it would have made a big difference on our own bottom line. And then what was really fascinating is tracking the data and also then being transparent with the data. So with our crews, now we say, which just sounds like a no brainer, but we weren't doing this. Hey, this job is bid for 80 hours. So that's the budget. And then it instilled kind of this competitive spirit in, you know, not, it didn't work for everyone, but for some of our crews, they're like, oh, we want to beat the budget. Or, you know, they would share like, oh, we beat the budget by 10 hours. What did your crew do? And so we did, it was 35% more revenue in 2021 over 2020. And wow. we only spent 4% more on labor to do that. That's impressive. That is it was super wild. impressive. <laughs> Numbers like, matter. Numbers yeah, matter. And it was a matter of tracking it, which conveys that it's important, which also allowed me to make decisions, to make changes. Now, you know, there's some other variables. I don't want people to think like, oh, we made 30% more profit because obviously there's other things that went into that. But the tracking, the labor piece, I was shocked to see that number. What that much more revenue to spend so much less or so, so much minimally more in labor was like phenomenal. <laughs> I think Peter Drucker once said, I think it was Peter Drucker, you can't, you can't improve what you don't measure. That's very accurate. <laughs> so congratulations on really the awesome improvement and success. Yeah, no, you more and more. I, 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 every time we talk, I mean, it's just more and more of like, oh man, there's, there's, there's more to, there's more to the tale. That's what I feel like every time. I'm like, oh, there's way more. There's way more. So thank you, thank you so much for your time. What, how can, how can people reach out to you or Solar or follow you or do? What do you want us to shout out here? Yeah. So I mean, if anyone's in the greater Seattle area or greater Austin area and is interested in learning about Solar, we uh, would be happy to share how it works and what the incentives are for Washington-based customers. Solar.solterra.com is our website, and there's lots of good information on there. And then in Texas, goodenergysolartx.com is our website for the, the greater Austin area. We are relatively active on Facebook and Instagram, so anyone who's listening who's not in those specific areas but wants to keep tabs on what we're uh, doing, they can find us at uh, Solterra Solar or Good Energy Solar on you know your standard social media platforms. Awesome. Well, again, thank you very, very much, Amy. Thank you. We Amy. had a blast. I hope you had a good time. <laughs> and let's let's kick off 2022 with a bang. Awesome. You're Love awesome. it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Thank you thank so you. much. Have a great one. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If this episode did help you, then be sure to share it with someone else who needs to hear it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or are looking for additional help on your journey to find more wealth, scale, and freedom in your AEC company, visit our AEC resources page at spotmigration.com backslash AEC hyphen resources. resources.